Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini, lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and just maybe entertain you a little bit. Here we go. Last week, we talked about the book of Ezra. You are now reading the book of Nehemiah. In fact, you would have started that last week if you're reading along with our Bible reading plan. And you'll be actually finishing it this week and getting into the book of Esther at the end of the week. Uh, So we're going to kind of keep going. Uh, I'm going to cover Nehemiah in this week's podcast, and then I'll talk about the book of Esther in next week's podcast. These three books are grouped together because they all sort of deal with the same period of time. Um, They are all focused on this, this sort of period where uh, Babylon has been conquered by the Persian Empire and the Jewish people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem after the exile. So the exile period is now over. Uh, And so this is sort of in the early days of the Persian Empire uh, because Persia as an empire did not actually exist very long before it conquered Babylon. These people sort of emerge on the world scene out of nowhere. It's kind of, the history behind it is really interesting because they they effectively don't exist as a nation for very long at all before they are conquering everybody in sight. Uh, And so they rise to power very, very quickly. And and later on, of course, they will uh, lose power when Alexander the Great conquers Persia. That'll all happen very quickly as well. But there's a nice long period in there where Persia rules most of the known world, and, and this is a very good time if you're uh, a Jewish person, because the exile is over, um, the Jewish people on the whole bec- are, are very faithful to the covenant with Israel, they are at peace, they are living in a nation that, for the most part, allows them to simply live their lives in, in peace, it doesn't bother them that much. Uh, Persian rule is overall very benevolent. Uh, it's a good time, so... Um, and once you get done with Ezra and Nehemiah, all that's really left in the Old Testament are the wisdom books and the prophets. And, and those span a really wide historical range. Some of them are written before the exile, some are during, some the last few prophetic books in the Old Testament come from the post-exilic period uh, and may even have been written uh, during the time of Greek rule under the, the generals of Alexander the Great. Some of them are pretty late. Um, so these three books are grouped together because they're really the only sort of narrative or historical books from this time period. Um, so we'll deal with Esther next week. Ezra, as I mentioned last week, is, is, is chronologically like the first of these books, most likely. Um, Esther's kind of a unique thing that we'll deal with next week. But, but of, the, of Ezra and Nehemiah, the story of Ezra takes place first. And in, in that book, uh, Ezra is essentially sent to Jerusalem to be the new high priest. So he's going to take over the leadership of the temple and, and of the worship there. And he's going to be responsible for teaching Jewish law and leading the people in renewing their covenant with God. And that's that's his job. And the book of Nehemiah, by its own account, 
begins about 12 years after the book of Ezra. And, and right, because each one of these books tells us uh, the rough date that the story is taking place based on how long the Persian king has been on the throne. Uh, and so Nehemiah tells us it's begun about 12 years after the events of the book of Ezra. It's a little confusing because there's a part towards the end where it talks about Ezra reading the law to the people. And of course that happens in the book of Ezra. But Nehemiah places it at the very end of his story. So the, the timeline is a bit fuzzy. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but in general, these things line up. So while Ezra is sent to be the high priest and he oversees the restoration of the temple and the renewal of the covenant, Nehemiah is, is appointed as the governor of the whole province. And he sets up Jerusalem as his provincial capital. And so he's focused on rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem and fortifying the city so it can serve as a regional power center for the Persian Empire. So it's a bit of a different point of view. Now Nehemiah it starts out the story, he's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And what that means is, his job, he, he selects the wine that the king will drink. And he also has to sample it to ensure it's free of poison. Now you and I might hear that and think, well that sounds like a raw deal, because what if someone's poisoned the wine, you're going to die, right? But this is actually a, a position of very high honor. There is a lot of trust placed in the cupbearer. Because the king's life is in his hands. This is an extremely important, highly respected job. And so Nehemiah has a very high-ranking position in the Persian court. Which is probably why the king actually agrees to send him to Jerusalem to be the governor. Uh, he starts off already as a very high... We're not told, by the way, how he how he earned such a high-ranking position in the court of a foreign king. Um, we may never know, but it's, it's, he's a high, high-ranking official. He would have effectively been one of the most trusted advisors of the king as the cupbearer because, again, the king's life is in his hands every day. So he's sent to Jerusalem to take over as the Persian governor. He's a Jewish man, though. Um... And he arrives there, and he's dismayed at the state the city is in. Right, the wall around the city is pretty much completely gone. It was destroyed when the Babylonians conquered the city, and what was left of it would have been would have been picked apart by the peasants who were left behind in the land. They would have taken that stone to use it to build homes for themselves. So there's probably not much of that wall remaining at all, not even the foundations in some places. And so he's going to get started on rebuilding the wall, and and, and this creates some tension between two other regional governors, one in uh, sort of the Samaria area to the north of Jerusalem and one, one to the south of where Jerusalem is, uh, because obviously they're not too thrilled at the way that this will reshape the political balance of the region. It threatens their political power, so they're not happy about it. And chapter 2 of Nehemiah ends with a bunch of outsiders, basically, mocking the efforts of the people of Jerusalem to rebuild their wall. And, and the, the book makes it clear 
that these outsiders who are mocking the people of Jerusalem will have no part of God's future plans for the city. They will be excluded from all the work God will do. And then chapter 3 opens with the list of all the insiders who are involved in the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall. And so this gives us an interesting picture, right? There will always be those who mock the work done by the people of God. People will always ridicule those who are inside God's kingdom. They just will. Whether they ridicule our beliefs or our practices or, or whether it's because they don't understand what God is doing or because they feel threatened by the work of the Holy Spirit, there will always be people who want to ridicule the people of God. But the story of Nehemiah shows that their opposition, their mockery, will not impede God's work in the slightest. Right? The wall gets built in the end. The work continues. Their mockery has no effect on him whatsoever. And this is a good lesson for us. That, that, uh, this is only going to become more and more true as the world around us becomes more heavily secularized. People will mock those who are doing the work of the kingdom. We will seem naive. We will seem flat out stupid to some people because of what we believe and how we go about living our lives. But their opposition, their mockery, their ridicule will not affect the work of God in the slightest. They can't hold it back. So moving on, moving on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 shows us a, a different type of struggle going on. Now there's a an internal struggle happening. So we've dealt with external problems. The people around Jerusalem are not thrilled that the wall is being rebuilt. Now we have the internal problems. And these are largely socioeconomic problems. And essentially what's happening is the upper classes who have moved back into Jerusalem are mistreating the poor. And, and now the poor are protesting. So these are mostly people who have moved back to Jerusalem from exile. And um, right, they've been here now 12 years since, since Ezra led the return. And Nehemiah's anger is very clearly directed at the rich people because they have violated the covenant of God by not caring for their neighbors and for the poor. So in chapter 5, verse 3, uh, you have it, it states very clearly that there are people who are mortgaging their homes and their land to buy food. Meaning, right, they're putting up their homes and their land as collateral for loans in order to buy food. Um, this is a problem, right? The, the laws of the Old Testament very clearly state, for one thing, that, that no family's land can actually be bought from them permanently. It always has to be returned. Um, but, but more than that, right, God never intended for his people to live that way. And what's happening is the rich are, are taking advantage of a dire situation at the expense of the poor. Right? They are making money off of their suffering. Because they're charging interest on these loans. They're also uh, having to, in verse 5, they're mortgaging their homes and their lands to pay their taxes. 
and uh, evidently what's happened is that um, when they default on their loans, the Jewish lenders who have given them the money, uh, when they come to collect the debt that they can't repay, they force them to sell their children into slavery to pay their debts. Now this is horrifying to us. Um, you should understand that this was actually quite common practice in the ancient world. Um, this was this was really the basis for all almost all of slavery in the ancient world. The the way that slavery was practiced then it was not like the slavery that was practiced in the United States. It was almost always a result of debt. Um, so they're selling their children into slavery to pay their debts. Not because they've decided, well, the best way to pay this debt is to sell my child into slavery, but because the lender says, you can't pay your debt, so we're going to sell your child, right? They force them into selling their children as slaves. Um, and, and crucially, this is something that is strictly forbidden by Jewish law. It's, it is clearly outlawed in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is a huge problem for Nehemiah. Right? He is furious. Jewish lenders are selling Jewish debtors into slavery when they can't pay back their debts. Huge moral problems, obviously against the law. He is furious. And so he immediately orders all of the lenders in Jerusalem to stop charging interest altogether. And then to return all of the interest that they have collected to the debtors, as well as returning all of the properties they've foreclosed on. And this is all in clear accordance with the Jewish law. And we should not take this to mean, by the way, that um, it's always wrong to charge interest on a loan or things like that. There are some times when it's acceptable. Um, the only really modern situation that might bear some similarity are, are loans with uh, unreasonably high interest charges. I would put credit cards in that category, usually, that kind of thing, right? Where the interest payments are just exorbitantly high and, and sort of clearly predatory. So this isn't necessarily like the kind of thing you get with like a car loan or a mortgage or, or things like that, where the interest rates are comparatively low and reasonable. Um, so, the, so don't necessarily think that this kind of thing just applies across the board to the way we do finances, but it is instructive, right, that... that the, the clear objective is to uh, stop an economic system that is taking advantage of the poor. It's not the same thing as ours, um, but the, the core idea still applies, right? Um, and remember, Nehemiah is the royal governor of Jerusalem, so people, people have to do what he tells them, right? He has this incredible authority to do it. And, and one of the ways, though, that he gets people to agree so readily to his his legal reforms is sort of at the end of chapter 5, he details some things, right? He doesn't take the full food allowance he's entitled to as the governor. He, he doesn't, he doesn't, basically he doesn't live the life of luxury he's entitled to. He distributes, he, he gives back to the poor. He lives generously. Um, in other words, he does the things he tells other people to do. He doesn't take advantage of his power or his position. He is a good, righteous leader. So, as just so Ezra begins the the whole saga right with religious reforms, 
Nehemiah is now doing legal reforms, practical reforms. And so eventually the wall is completed, right? Um, Jerusalem is safe. And, and throughout this whole thing, right, this is a real story. Okay, these are real people. These are real events. But it's kind of constructed in such a way that, that building the wall around Jerusalem is like a metaphor for actually restoring the, the people to their faithfulness in the covenant of God. Right? The, the, as the wall is rebuilt, the, the, the final rounds of reforms are finished, and the people are now once again living faithfully according to the law. There's a real sort of beauty in the construction there, that, that literally they physically rebuilt Jerusalem, and they've also spiritually rebuilt themselves. wall is finished and the reforms are finished and now the people can breathe easy the city is safe the people are faithful everything's going to be okay for a while of course nehemiah's reforms um aren't quite as shocking to us as what Ezra does, right? Because Ezra has that whole saga where he makes a bunch of people divorce their wives because they married foreign wives. Nehemiah's reforms are, are maybe a bit easier to get behind, right? Um, but both books highlight something important, which is that God's people are called to live differently. It's a, it's a repetitive theme throughout the Bible, right? God's people are called to live differently. And what Ezra and Nehemiah both recognized is that the calamity that had befallen their people was a result of their failure to do that. So when they come back, the first things they do is they set about ensuring that the people will uphold their end of the covenant with God. And Nehemiah provides this really remarkable example of a faithful God-fearing leader who does not take advantage of his position. He leads the Jewish people in upholding the law of God. Right? He's one of the very few leaders in the Bible who actually accomplishes this. In many ways, he's a more faithful leader than David or Solomon. Um, and in that sense, he's this remarkable example to us. But he, he's a fascinating figure. But the, the book itself is very short. Very short. Because really the main point is to highlight the way that he's not just rebuilding the wall, but he's rebuilding the people. They have the law now, they've heard the law, the law's been read, the temple's been redone, but evidently they still need some reminding about what it means to live out their faith in their daily lives. So, because he, he has, of course, the reforms with, with the way that people are lending and, and things like that, but he also has those moments where he has to have people stationed on the wall with their spears and, and taking turns between standing guard and rebuilding the wall, right? There's this whole sense of, of watchfulness and readiness to do what's necessary. And it, there's, there's just so much depth to dig into here. Um, 
So you have these dual themes of he's rebuilding the people, he's teaching them how to be loving and merciful and compassionate again. He's teaching them how to be watchful for, for the intrusion of any uh, outsiders. And, and we, can, we, we tend to ignore the, the parts of the Old Testament that deal with like outsiders versus insiders because we don't want to seem like we're an exclusive religion. But the idea is not to... Not so much to uh, cut ourselves off from the outside world, but to be wary of the influence of the outside world in the sense that we have to be on guard against the way that the world will shape our beliefs in the, in the way in which it will reshape our beliefs. Remember, Israel got themselves into this mess in the beginning by allowing their hearts and minds to be won over by the pagan cultures around them. So Ezra and Nehemiah are very strict in rejecting those things and in, in enforcing a strict separation of the Jewish people from the peoples around them, from the cultures around them. Um, we tend to be less strict about that, but we do need to always remember that... Um, we need to always remember that the world is always trying to influence us. It's always trying to reach in and reshape the way we think, reshape the way we look at the world. And we have to be on guard against that. We maybe don't need rebuilding in the same way that Jerusalem and the Jewish people did, but we do need to be on our guard against the influences that would come in and reshape us and reclaim us. We need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to, to defend our faith from time to time. And we need to be prepared to reform our faith from time to time. Nehemiah doesn't just protect the people from outside influences, he protects the people from corrupting influences inside. And all too often it's really easy for us to focus on one or and ignore the other. But Nehemiah doesn't do that, right? He, he's just as good at defending the people from external threats as he is at dealing with internal threats. The culture outside the church may want to influence the church to change its ways, to change its beliefs, to change its teachings. But there are also those inside the church who would like that as well. We have to protect against both. That's what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness looks like Focusing on the will and the goodness of God. No matter what. And that's Nehemiah. Until next week, my friends. God bless.